In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and one God, amen. I want to welcome all of you to the adult meeting. Um, uh, we are going to be starting uh, several different series uh, in the adult meeting. Uh, who knows how long this, uh, this webcasting and, and coronavirus will be going. So until it settles down, we'll be doing this. Um, I'm going to be starting a series on the liturgy that's going to go for several weeks. Uh, Peter Raffalo will be starting a series on dogma and theology. And uh, Tony Solomon will be starting a series on marriage and family life. So I, we look forward to starting those three series. Um, and with God's grace, we'll talk a lot about the liturgy and the importance of the liturgy um, and how it's very central to our life here as Christians, as Orthodox Christians. Um, I'll start with this great quote by St. John Chrysostom. It is needful to understand the miracle of the mysteries, what it is, why it was given, and what is its profit. Um, and this is really important because sometimes we end up standing in the liturgy and we're there for a long time and we've been raised with the liturgy and we kind of get bored of it um, and frankly don't get much out of it. Maybe we'll say a few prayers here and there, but a lot of it will be missed uh, in, our, in our spiritual lives. And so the, the, the liturgy is a central act of Christianity. Um, has to be something we have to understand. You know, and the question is, why study the liturgy? Why study anything spiritual? Why can't I just be a spiritual person? So, and someone will say that, you know, I'm not a theologian. I'm not, you know, going to be one of these seminarian guys. I just want to go and have a good spiritual life. And the answer is sure. You know, we can, you know, there's no reason to study things in particular. It's more important to live them than to study them. But having said that, you know, when I understand what I'm doing, it allows me to fully participate with my whole being, right? That I'm not just standing there and kind of getting what's going on, but I can really be a part of what this thing is, right? And if I understand the theology behind what's happening and, and the meaning behind what's happening, the depth of what's happening, it puts me in a whole different world, right? Uh, and I can stay, say as a child, you know, a child doesn't need to understand, but as I get older, as I become an adult in my Christian life, I do need to understand. Uh, and I do need to um, participate in such a way that I can then pass it on to my children and help them understand and help them see what's happening and what they are uh, becoming a part of. And the liturgy of the liturgy of the Eucharist is the mystery of mysteries, as the church says, right? Uh, it seals all the other mysteries, uh, you know, when we have a baptism, for example, after the baptism, we have communion. Uh, after marriage, in the, in the traditional rite of the church, we have communion. Uh, after an ordination of a bishop or a priest or a deacon, we have communion. Right? This, this mystery seals the other mysteries. It's the highest level. We actually don't do any mysteries or after this mystery. It's the, it's the, it's the highest one, um, and it's the most important one. Um, and if you notice during the pandemic, uh, one of the things we, you know, every, we dropped everything. We dropped the retreats, we dropped the, you know, the trips, we dropped the Bible studies, we dropped everything. But the one thing we pushed for is communion um, and, uh, you know, went through great lengths to make sure that people could take communion, not just watch it on the live stream. And, and uh, his grace, his eminence was just amazing in this. He, he didn't want priest to just have a bunch of liturgies and we all sit in our TVs and watch, but no, to actually take communion. And that was the key aspect of it. It was actually taking communion and that was the most important part. Um, and so you see the importance the liturgy has, the Eucharist has in the, in the life of the church. So this is our schedule with God's grace. Um, you can see there's lots of different topics. And then if God gives us strength, we'll 
continue after this um, and do more topics about explaining the liturgy piece by piece. But for me, the more important part of the liturgy isn't, you know, what does this movement mean? And when Abuna does this, it means that. Before we can get there, we have to understand the broader implications and, and understand really what's happening uh, in the Eucharist. Uh, and so today we'll talk about the institution of the liturgy. Uh, and the reason the institution of the liturgy is important is because um, in, in our denom in our faith, uh, there are several in our country, there are several denominations that don't hold the communion as uh, Eucharist as important as we do. Um, in fact, in many uh, Protestant um, sects and groups there, you know, communion is optional. Some churches have it, some churches don't. Some churches do it once a month. Um, some churches don't at all, and they don't really believe uh, what it is. So we want to talk a little bit more about that. But first, before we do that, let's talk about some words. The first word is uh, Lord Liturgy, right? And Lord Liturgy literally means the work of the people. Um, and so this is a really important concept because it, it's not the work of the priest or the deacon. It's the work of everyone. And in, in, in our Orthodox Church, we say that the, 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 the participants, the people, are co-celebrants with the, with the priest, right? Um, and so this means that Lots of services in the church are called liturgies, right? We have a liturgy of baptism. We have a liturgy of marriage. We have a liturgy of the blessing of water. These are all liturgies. And finally, the official way we're supposed to say is the liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, sometimes we all do a little shorthand. I do, I know, um, where I just say liturgy. But it should be technically the liturgy of the, of the Eucharist, and that's the one where we take communion. Um, and so let's poke a little bit about the word uh, Eucharist means. Uh, the Eucharist means thanksgiving. Uh, to start there, but it's a bigger word than than thank you, right? It, it it encompasses and recalls all of God's works, right? His creation, His redemption, sanctification, and so in it, it's an element of praise and glorification and magnification, right? It's all of these things. So when you say thank you, it is it does mean thank you. It does mean thanksgiving, but it's it's thanking God for all of the things He's done for us, and we recalls to us. So. The beautiful thing of how we name the, the, the liturgy, the Eucharist, is, is when we get together and we think of God giving us his body and his blood, the only word that comes to mind is thank you. Thank you for everything you've done and for how you brought all this together. Um, the word mass is a word sometimes we, heard, we hear used around, especially in the Catholic Church. Um, and this is not an Orthodox word, unfortunately. It's a Catholic word, and it describes a part of their service that actually isn't in the Orthodox Church. It comes from the Latin ita misa and literally means go, this is the dismissal. So it's a part of the yuke of their service and we don't have that service. So in the Orthodox Church, we never say the word mass. We always say the word um, liturgy. And this, this becomes important because um, the by the people part, the liturgy means work of the people. Um, it's, it, there's, a, there's a difference in the Catholic Church, for example, they don't, um, they believe that one uh, priest can offer the mass by himself. And the Orthodox Church, we don't allow that. We insist that at least there be one other person there. Uh, and it's a small difference, but it's meaningful. We don't want our priest to go by himself to the church and offer mass uh, on behalf uh, of the people and say, you know, you, you, the clergy can do this. No, we think it's a work of the people. No one does it on our behalf. We do it together, right, as one body. Um, so in the Orthodox Church, we do excuse me, we don't have this uh, right where a priest can offer the Eucharist by himself. So let's talk about the very first liturgy. So this liturgy, as you all know, uh, the first 
the first uh, Last Supper was uh, instituted on Maundy Thursday, uh, and it was the the night before the the cross. And this is very relevant, right? What we what we do on our last day on Earth is very telling. You know, I, I imagine if 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 I was going in for a big surgery that was very risky, that that you know had a five percent chance of success, and that I could possibly die the next day, I would bring my family together, and we'd all sit at my bed, and we would we would talk and I would talk about something important, right? I wouldn't just say, hey, you know, did you hear the latest joke, right? But I would, I would tell people how I loved them and I would tell people how I wanted them to live and I would tell my children what to do with their lives. It would be very meaningful to me that last night on earth, right? Christ knew this was his last night and he picked, he picked the Eucharist to be the thing he did before he went to the cross. And it's, it's as if it's not an extension of the cross, it's the beginning of the cross, right? He says, he's saying, I, my flesh and my blood will be shed, right? It will be given, right, for the remission of sins. And then he says, eat this, this is my flesh and my blood. Right? So he started them down this path of understanding, right? And he did it the, the very, the very uh, last night of his life. And the word mandi, it comes from the Latin root mand, or, you know, so, you know, an order or requirement, right? So whenever we say something that's mandatory or mandate, it's something you order someone to do. Um, and that's because on this day, Christ ordered them to do two things. He, he washed their feet and he said, do this, right, as I have done. And then with the Eucharist, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So he ordered them to do two things that night um, before he went to the cross and, you know, serve others and have the Eucharist. Uh, and ultimately, when, when we boil down Christian life, it, it really, those two are biggies, right? That, that we take the Eucharist and we serve others, right? And that's ultimately two of the biggest things we do as Orthodox Christians. So today I'm going to talk about sources of knowledge and um, biblical, apostolic, and historical. Um, and this is how we know what we know about the Eucharist. Um, and I, I want to go through this because um, sometimes, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, some of our Protestant brethren say, well, you know, this is not what, what Christ intended. This is not what the church intended. This is not, this is wrong. Um, and I want to talk about what we know and why we know what we know. So, you know, in, 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 in evangelical Christianity, a lot of people will say this is just a symbol or it's a memorial, remembrance, right? These are words that are constantly used. Um, Swingley, when he, you know, in the Protestant uh, revelation, revolution, he said that this is memorialism, right? This isn't really the body and blood of Christ. This is something we do to remember the body and blood, remember the sacrifice on the cross. And it just is a symbol. It's a symbolic thing. <clears throat> and to think that it's really the body and blood is, is too much, right? And many Protestants started thinking this, right? So around the 16th, 17th century, this became a very popular uh, concept um, and that you know and then little by little different Protestant denominations stopped giving communion or, or started giving it more rarely uh, and certainly didn't give it make it have the reverence that it had before um, and this is different than what uh, the church has done and this is different what orthodoxy teaches um, so we'll start with the words uh, that the institutional narrative this is something you've all seen from the liturgy many times heard uh, take, eat of it, all of you, for this is my body, which is to be broken for you and for many to be given for the remission of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Uh, and these are the words Christ spoke. If this is kind of combined of several pieces of the gospel. Um, and what we want to do is we want to dissect these words here in a second and just kind of go through their importance. And the reason we have to do that is because, unfortunately, um, to us, these words are very clear. Um, but to many Protestants, uh, it's not. And um, I, I want to show you a video. Uh, this is a, a pastor, Francis Chan. Um, and just to give you some background, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I'll let you hear his own words. Um, this is very, actually quite recently, uh, this, this, uh, you know, th this happened, this video happened and he started saying these things. This was a couple of months ago. Uh, Francis Chan is a very famous guy, apparently. He's a pastor of a mega church. He's very well respected uh, in the Protestant community. And what he says has a lot of influence on people. Um, and this is his revelation just a few months ago. And since then, this has gone viral and lots of people are talking about this, um, that, um, that the Eucharist has, has lost its importance in the Protestant church and he just figured it out. Um, and he just learned some history and he realized something um, pretty big and he wants to share it with everyone. So I'll, I'll, I'll share this video with you now. Taking of the body and blood of Christ somehow in some real way. Again, I'm not making any like grand statements. I'm just saying I, some of the stuff I didn't know I didn't know that for the first 1,500 years of church history, everyone saw it as the literal body and blood of Christ. And it wasn't until 500 years ago that someone popularized a thought that it's just a symbol and nothing more. I didn't know that. I thought, wow, well, that's something to consider. Um, and and I, while I won't make a strong statement, I will make a statement about this. It was at that same time that for the first time, someone put a pulpit in the front of the gathering. Because before that, it was always the body and blood of Christ that was central to their gatherings. For 1,500 years, it was never one guy and his pulpit being the center of the church. It was the body and blood of Christ. And even the leaders just saw themselves as partakers. And oh man, we're not worthy, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. I say that because the church is more divided than any time in history. What does this book tell us clearly? That he does not want any divisions in his church. And for a thousand years, there was just one church. Did you know that? We're so used to growing up in a time when literally there are over 30,000 Christian denominations right now. But for the first thousand years, there was just one. What was interesting is communion was at the center of the room every time they gathered. And it wasn't a pulpit where a guy preached after studying in his office by himself for 20 hours. See, right now we've got guys like me that go in a room, study, you know, that, that's what I was doing for years. Meanwhile, other guys went in their rooms and studied, and then we started all giving different messages, so many contradicting each other, and pretty soon it's like, well, I follow Piper, I follow Chan, I follow, you know, it's just like everyone's following different guys. I'm just saying, I, I believe there was something about taking communion 
out of the center of the church and replace it with a gifted speaker. Not that that gifted speaker is not a part of the body of Christ and a gift to the body of Christ, but the body itself needs to be back in the center of the church. You guys, I've been dreaming about this. I've been praying about this. Going, man, I would love it if one day in our country here in the U.S., people understood the body of Christ, that they were just a part of it, and they got excited to gather and partake of the body and blood of Christ. And they celebrated together, and that's why we gathered. Uh, this video is so powerful, um, especially at the end when he gets very emotional. He's like, I dream that one day we gather. And he says, to celebrate the body of Christ, and that's why we gather. Um, and, and to Orthodox Christians, we're just like, well, yeah, that's why we gather, right? We become a part of the body. You see him tearing bread as he's, as he's using his hand motions, and this is a dream of his. Um, and you can see that, that as history has become more clear and there's more research and there's more resources available, more people are starting to understand that this is, in fact, the way the church has always been. Um, and we can debate what does this verse mean or what does that verse mean, right? But in the end, um, we can look now and we can just say, well, empirically, we know what happened. We know what the apostles did. We know what the first early church church fathers did. Um, and so reactions like uh, Pastor Chan have become more and more common where people are like, wait a minute, what we're doing is, is very different. And in fact, you know, when, when you attend an evangelical service today, it looks nothing like anything the church has ever seen. It's, it's a lot of it is Christian entertainment. A lot of it, the, the messages are very different. As he's mentioned, 30,000 different sects in the church everyone with different conflicting messages. And because there is no tradition, the church just kept splitting and splitting and splitting uh, among itself. Everyone had their own interpretation. And um, it's kind of sad to see because, you know, not only is, is some of the worship we see now unrecognizable uh, in the history of the church, it's unrecognizable even to Americans 50 years ago. Uh, you know, if, if you look at, you know, the Puritans and the pilgrims that came over on the Mayflower and the way they worshipped um, and the way church was even in the 1800s or early 1900s, if those people came back today and saw, they would, they would say, what are you guys doing? What is this? This, is, this isn't anything like we've ever done, right? And if you see very traditional churches, they, they have a hymnal and they're very proper and what's happening now is so much different than that, right? And, and he's coming to that conclusion and dreaming of a day when the church gathers and, the, and it isn't the pulpit and the word that's, that's the middle of the church, the center of the church, but the Eucharist is the center of the church. Christ is the center of the church. And he's the one that feeds, not a gifted speaker. So I, I love this video. Um, so let's look, go back to the institutional narrative. A lot is told to us here. This is my body. That's what Christ said. Right. He, he didn't say this is a symbol of my body or let's pretend this is my body. or This is a form of my body. Right. He's very powerful. He says, this is my body. And um, unfortunately, even after he, he you know, he was he was very strong in his words. People will come along, you know, 1500 years later and say, no, that's not really what he meant. He didn't really mean it's his body. 
right? He's talking about a symbol or something. And Christ was very clear. This wasn't a parable. This wasn't uh, some, some metaphor that he was saying. What he said is what he said, um, which is to be given for you and for men. So here he's telling us that this isn't a one-off event, that this is something I want you to keep doing. I want you to keep having the Eucharist. I want you to keep gathering and having my body and my blood over and over again. Right. And again, we can argue and say, well, that's not really what Christ wanted the apostles to do. And that's not really what he meant. He just meant that the, the, the sacrifice is for everybody. And you can say, okay, we can disagree about that interpretation of that verse. Right? But let's see what the apostles did. Right? So these are the guys he actually said this to. Right? Well, what did they do? They went out and they had Eucharist over and over again. Right? And, and those of you who know a little bit of our church history know that, that the, the apostle that came to Egypt was St. Mark. And St. Mark was martyred in Egypt. And do you know when he was martyred? He was martyred uh, on the feast, uh, Easter feast, during the liturgy, right? So he was praying the, the liturgy, and there was, um, it was a pagan feast that same night. The pagan guys came out of their temple. They found him praying the liturgy. They dragged him off the altar, tied him to a horse, and ran him through the streets of Alexandria, and that's how he was martyred, right? But he was martyred performing the liturgy. So we know, we know what the apostles did. We saw what they did, right? So we know how this was interpreted, uh, given for the remission of sins, right? So since when does regular bread forgive sins, right? It's obviously something that um, Christ intended to say, this is the beginning of the cross, right? Only my blood and my body forgive sins. I forgive sins. I forgive sins. And so this flesh, this, this, this bread and this wine is my flesh that forgives sins. And so he's obviously elevating this above some, some regular meal. And then he ends with, do this in remembrance of me. And this is the verse that confuses uh, many of our Protestant brethren. Um, because uh, they, they say, well, look, he says, in remembrance. So I'm going to do a remembrance. Okay. And there's a few things we have to think about. The first thing is God is outside time. So we don't think of God, uh, the actions of Christ in time because God is not in time. I, for example, I live in a moment. I, I live in right now. I can't be five minutes from now and I can't be five minutes ago. I, I, I get one moment to be in. Right? So God isn't like that. We don't say that God, for example, knows the future. We say God is in the future. And we say God is in the past. Right? For me, there's a future and a past, not for him. So he's outside of this, this concept of time. So the crucifixion for, 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 for Orthodox Christians isn't a, an event that happened 2,000 years ago. He is being crucified. Right? We say uh, during these holy 50 days, Christ is risen. Not he rose or he, you know, as some past event. He is risen. He is rising. And he is rising with me, with him. So we say he is crucified and I'm participating in that crucifixion. And so the Last Supper is very much the same way. We don't say the Last Supper occurred. The Last Supper is occurring, right? And we constantly live in this Last Supper that is continuing and doesn't stop, right? So this word remembrance, uh, it's a, the Greek word for remembrance that we have actually in allergy is anamnesis. It comes from the word amnesia. Right? So it's a, much, it's, a, it's a much bigger meaning, deeper meaning, more significant meaning than the English. The English just means remembering, and it could mean remembering a past event. But for 
uh, but in the Greek, this word means I'm remembering something that's living, a living remembrance, an ongoing remembrance, not something that happened uh, in the past. Right? So karyotic amnesis means when I put these two words together, acrosis uh, means the opportune time, time outside of time. And amnesis uh, uh, comes from the word amnesia, like I just said. Amnesia means when you know someone, whatever, gets in an accident, hits their head, they forget things and they forget the past and the present. And so if you ask them, hey, who's that kid? And it's their child there. I don't know who that kid is. And they say, what's your name? I don't know what my name is. What'd you do today? I don't know what I did today. So they're forgetting two things. They're forgetting the past and the, pa the, 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 the current. So anam uh, anamnesis means a anamnesia, right? So in the Greek, whenever you put an A in front of something, it means a not that. Okay, so it's the anti uh, of, of, of that. So a anamnesia means not amnesia. So if amnesia is forgetting, this is remembering. And if amnesia is forgetting the past and the present, this is remembering the past and the present, right? So I'm remembering the present moment, right? And this is what St. John Chrysostom says, that that very same supper at which Christ was present is accomplished the Eucharistic Supper does not differ from that supper in any way. Right? So we, we don't even want to say that we're remembering that past supper, that we are, but we say that we're living in that past supper. Right? Abuna Tedros Malati has this beautiful quote where he says, I, I'm, I, in his book, Christ in the Eucharist, he says, I wonder if God comes down and as the church is celebrating the liturgy, transforms the whole church into heaven or whether he comes down, takes the whole church, and takes it up to heaven. And, and he, he, he imagines, he doesn't know which one it is. Right? So it's a very beautiful quote. And that's what, what we're doing, is we're living in this life-giving Eucharist, right? this, this, this very moment. And uh, St. John Chrysostom continues, says, he who celebrated the divine Eucharist at the Last Supper is the same one who now also performs these mysteries. So if I ask you, who celebrated the liturgy? You don't say Abuna. Abuna didn't celebrate the liturgy today. Right? Christ celebrated the liturgy. It was Abuna's hands. Right? Through Abuna, this happened. Right? In the Gregorian liturgy, we have this beautiful, beautiful part. Of course, half of us are, are half asleep and, and we're hungry. But when Abuna says, Oh, you who broke, now break. Right? He's talking to Christ. He says, Oh, you who broke in the past, do now break. And then he breaks with his own hands. I get goosebumps when I think about this, right? That it's Christ who is breaking and this priest is standing there breaking. We see the priest, but it is Christ who's performing the Eucharist. St. John Chrysostom continues, we priests are in the position of servants. The one who sanctifies and changes is Christ. So Christ is performing the liturgy, right? And we are, we are reliving in that life-giving liturgy continuously, right? So we see this very deep meaning in the iconography, right? So when we look at this icon of, of the Eucharist, you see that, that the, 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 the artist, the, the iconographer drew this, uh, wrote this in a certain way. So the question is, where are you at this liturgy? Look at the icon very carefully. Right? Where are you relative to this life-giving event? Are you watching it? Are you looking at a, an event that happened 2,000 years ago as, as some of the modern art is and you just kind of see the scene of people doing things? Where are you? 
Look at this one. Where are you? Where are you? You're at the table. Right. So the important point here is that the, the Eucharist wasn't an event we're watching. We're at the table. Right. So when, when Abuna prays the Eucharist, we're there at the Last Supper, and the church is snatched into heaven, and we become a part of this Eucharist that never, never stops. So John chapter six is one of these beautiful chapters and one of the most powerful chapters about the Eucharist. And I'll read it to you. It says, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Who, whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty, right? And of course, this is kind of like big talk, right? Say, I'm the bread of life. And, and you know, everyone's like, what are you talking about your bread? I mean, right now, I think we, we all understand the concept of communion. We understand what's going on. But at the time, this is just kind of like, you know, crazy stuff, right? And so at this time, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, aren't you Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary? We know your mom. We know your dad. How can you say I came down from heaven? And then Christ continues, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they are dead. And this is an important thing because the, the man in the wilderness is a big thing. If you guys remember during the story of Exodus, the Jews left Egypt and they went into this, the Sinai, into Sinai Peninsula. And they wandered there for 40 years. For those of you who've been to Sinai, you know it's a horrible, desolate place, right? Nothing can live there for 40 years, right? So you take a million people and you put them there for 40 years, they'll all be dead in a month, Okay. Nothing can grow in the land. If you brought animals with you, they'll all starve to death very quickly. Right? There's no way that, that a million people can live there. Right? There's nothing. And one of the biggest miracles in the history of the world is that a million people lived in the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years. Right? That's just phenomenal. And the Jews know this. Right? And the Jews, they hold this. They say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Right? This is the big, this is the big claim to, to the to proof that, that God, this, we are God's people and God loves us. Right? And so Christ comes along and he says, I know that you're really impressed that your fathers ate men in the wilderness, but they ate men in the wilderness and now they're dead. Right? He continues, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven. So he's saying the men, as you, as you know, and we'll actually talk about this in one of the later talks, men that coming down from heaven is the bread that came down from heaven that gave life. So when we see manna coming down in the story of the Exodus, we know that this is the Eucharist. This is a symbol of the bread that comes down that gives us life. In fact, the word bread uh, in Arabic, at least, and Aramaic and, and Hebrew, sorry, is aish, right? As, as some of you know, aish means uh, bread. And the word aish is a very, which means to live life is a very small derivative of aish, right? So aish and aish are two, very closely related words. Aish means bread, Aish means life. And so bread is life. He says, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whosoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the rest of the world. Again, very powerful words. And then he continues, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. And that's why I love this, this icon of Christ as the true vine, 
right? And we are all branches in this vine. And the source of the vine is the chalice, right? In the chalice, we all become part of this vine of Christ, a part of the body. As you all know, in the prayers of baptism, there's this beautiful uh, prayer where we say, graft us into the tree of life. Right? And when you graft something, as you know, and those of you studied botany, right? you, you kind of scrub a part of a branch, you take a branch from another tree and you stick it into that tree, right? And if you took that branch off, that branch will die. But if you graft it into the tree, right, and you do it right, the nutrients from that tree will then start to flow into this new branch, right, and give it life. Right? So this is, this is what we do. He says very clearly, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. This is how we are in Christ. Right? So the worst thing we can do, the worst thing we can do to somebody um, in the church is do what? Is excommunicate them. Right? That's the worst thing you're going to do. Right? That's, the, that's the biggest thing. What does that mean? We don't shoot them. What does excommunication mean? Right? We, don't, we don't hit them with a broom. We just say, you can't take communion, right? And that is the, the big thing. That's the biggest stick the church has against the worst people. And it's not used lightly. When someone says, you can't take communion, because what am I saying? I'm going to look at this tree, and you're a branch, and I'm going to take a saw, and I'm going to cut it off. And when I cut that branch off, if you know what's actually happening, when that branch falls to the ground, that branch will die. And it's just a matter of time. Right? And so this is why for us, the Eucharist is so essential, because when we cut ourselves off from that tree, we die. And this is why the church is going through great lengths to try to give communion to people as best we can, because we know this is life. He says, just as uh, um, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. And he continues, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your fathers ate manna, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And what's really telling here is the reaction to these words. Now, these words, you know, right now we can kind of say, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But back then it just sounded, you know, like wild, right? And on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I mean, you're, you're calling yourself bread. You're saying I have to eat your flesh and drink your blood. You know, isn't this a bit much, right? And aware that his, his disciples, these are disciples that were following Jesus at the time, were grumbling about this. Jesus said to them, does this offend you? And from this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him, right? So this is, this is interesting. People left Jesus when he said these things. People walked away, right? Now, at that moment, I would imagine Jesus would say, well, no, hang on, guys. This is just a symbol this is just a memorial. This is just remembrance. This is, this is a parable. This isn't even the real, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, no one's going to eat my flesh and come on guys. Right. And he could have backtracked, but his reaction is very big. He says these words, people start to leave him. And instead of saying, no, this is just a symbol and I'm just giving a parable and you don't understand. He looks to the disciples and he basically asks his 12, do you also want to leave? It says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Said, as Jesus asked the 12, right? So he turns to the disciples and says, you guys can go as well. This is non-negotiable. What I said, I have said, and this is the truth, and this is the reality. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And if you don't get it, that's fine. But that doesn't mean it's not true, right? And of course, Peter, being Peter, as he always is, uh, answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, right? So Peter's always kind of the big... He's always the suck up, right? He always says the right thing at the right time. And then he 
goes and cries afterwards and <laughs> regrets what he did. It's fun. So um, this is uh, a quote from St. Justin Martyr. And St. Justin, of course, is one of my, uh, is a favorite saint of mine. And um, I should probably name one of my kids after him. Uh, he's, he's an amazing uh, apologetic uh, for the early church. And he's very, very early, first and second century. Um, and I'll give you a little background to, to what St. Justin was doing. Um, in the early, early church, uh, because of all this talk about Eucharist, they thought Christians were cannibals, right? So, you know, a cannibal eats other humans, right? It's kind of gross. And there was a rumor spreading around that the Christians, it turns out, are all cannibals, right? Because they keep eating this guy named Jesus, right? And this poor guy named Jesus, I guess we took him in the back, we killed him, <laughs> and then we all ate him. And that's what we did at church, right? We all go in, we eat Jesus. And so St. Justin started writing as an apologetic outside, and he's obviously a, a philosopher and a theologian, and he started explaining to them what the Eucharist was um, so that they didn't think we're cannibals. And in so doing, he gives us a lot of insight. You know, obviously no one thinks we're cannibals now, but he gives us a lot of insight to what the church actually believed about the Eucharist. So it's really nice to kind of read it, and he's telling us what the early church believed. He says, the food, this food we call the Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake except one who believes the things that we teach are true and has received the washing for forgiveness of sins and for rebirth. What is he saying there? No one can partake unless he's received the washing for forgiveness of sins and for rebirth. He's talking about baptism. And this is interesting because he's basically saying you can't take communion unless you're baptized. This is as early as the first century. This is a very uh, interesting thing because, you know, a lot of times in the Orthodox Church, we get accused of being, you know, closed-minded and we're very closed off and we're jerks and we don't, we don't baptize people. And, you know, someone will say, oh, my friend came to the liturgy with me and we Abuna wouldn't give him communion because he's not baptized. Why are we so? But you can see this is something from the very early centuries, right? Because when you think about what communion is, Right when you think of Christ being in that the vine, and the chalice being the base, and baptism is me grafting into this vine, and the chalice is the soil feeding the vine. So the question is, why would you take communion if you're not part of the vine? Right? Why would if you're not in the tree of 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 Christ? Right? If you haven't said I'm part of being a Christian, why would you want to be fed? Right? The way that, by Christ through Christ. Anyway, he continues, this is the important part. We do not receive, for we do not receive these things as common bread or common drink, but as Jesus Christ, our Savior, being incarnate by God's word, took flesh and blood for our salvation. So also we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer, which comes from him, from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. So he's saying he took flesh and blood I'm to, for our salvation, and I will be nourished by his flesh and blood. In so doing, he's saying, this is really what we believe, that this is really the flesh and blood. So this is where you know, people like Pastor Chan come along and say, look, it appears that everybody has thought this for the whole span of Christianity, right? that this is not new stuff. Right. The new stuff is what we're, what we're saying five, started 500 years ago, that you know, this stuff isn't really real. No one's ever said that until now, right? until recently. I want to talk to you about an important concept of, of the tradition. And the tradition sometimes in our church gets a bad rap 
because we say, oh, that's just tradition. And sometimes we think tradition is simply imitating the past, blindly imitating the past and saying, you know, well, that's what they did, so that's what we're going to do. And that's not what the, the point of, of what tradition is, right? Tradition is the unwritten part of the life of the church, right? And it fills in the gaps of the written part of the life of the church, right? So, so many things in our church are passed down through tradition, uh, and we consider it as binding uh, as the Bible itself, right? Because many of these things were not written down that happened in the life of Christ or the life of the apostles. Um, and it would be very foolish for us to say, well, then it's not important, right? It wasn't written down, so we're just not going to do it, right? And I'll give you some ex quick examples. You know, the day when Jesus fed the five the 5,000 men with the five loaves and the two fish, um, it, it says that he he talked all day, right? And he gave a sermon so enthralling that 5,000 people sat there, right? And at the end of the day, everyone's like, wait a minute, I'm really hungry. What did he say all day long? What did Christ say that kept all these people enthralled all day long? Right? It's not written down. No one wrote down the sermon that he gave uh, when he fed the five loaves and the two and the, the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish, right? Is that, law, is that sermon lost? Is it gone forever? in the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, right? So this is actually the period we're celebrating now, the 50, the holy 50 days. We go, we say from the resurrection to the Pentecost is 50 days, right? The resurrection to the ascension is 40 plus another 10 to the Pentecost. This is called the Chemesin or the 50 days, the holy 50. Um, in those, the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, it says Christ appeared to his disciples and talked to them about matters concerning the kingdom of God. Can you imagine? This guy dies, he comes back from the dead and starts talking to you about matters concerning the kingdom of God, right? That, that seems like pretty important to me. I would kind of want to know what that is, right? It's not written down. They didn't write it down. The book of Acts just says, they talk, he talked to us about matters concerning that. And so you're like, well, what did he say? I'm really curious, right? Is this, is this gone? Is it lost? Is it, you know, forever? And no, right? He said it to the apostles, and so I can look at how the apostles then lived and I can say, well, let me figure out what Christ said from the, what they did and how they lived and what they taught. Um, except for Paul and Mark, the writings of the 70 apostles are very sketchy and they're not found anywhere in the Bible. Uh, and also the very few of the 12, the disciples have any writings. Like, you know, there's St. Jude you know, can, has one chapter in the Bible. Can we say that everything St. Jude taught was one chapter? All his sermons, all his service, all his preaching was a chapter, and that's all we have preserved, and so the rest was, was unimportant or, or not necessary? Of course not, right? So, but, um, the, the, so that the incompleteness of, of what's in the Gospels is, is obvious. Um, uh, every once in a while, you come across uh, certain verses, you know, St. Peter will tell St. Timothy, uh, will tell Timothy, I want you to ordain elders the way I instructed you, right? And the question is, how did he instruct him? We have no idea, right? So all he tells Timothy is ordain elders, and the word elder here is the word presbyter, which actually means uh, a priest, right? So we, in the Orthodox Church, we shouldn't be saying priest, we should be saying presbyters. That's the proper Greek term. And the word presbyter literally means the elder. So every time you see the word elder in the Bible, uh, it's the trend of the, that word in Greek is presbyteros, which is what we call uh, our clergy. Um, and he said, ordain presbyters the way I instructed you. And the question is, well, how, how did you instruct us? It's nowhere in the Bible. And 
So is it lost? We actually know as Orthodox Christians how that happened, right? And it, it happens very much the same way it still happens today, which is we blow in the face of, of the person being ordained and give them the Holy Spirit. So just because things are unwritten and not uh, in the Gospels, right? Uh, can we say they aren't important? Can we say they shouldn't, they don't need to be there? Well, what, no one wrote it down. Uh, of course not, right? These things were carried on to us through the Holy Tradition. So lots of things came to us from the Holy Tradition. Marriage, having a marriage at church. This isn't, if you read the Bible, nowhere does it say have a marriage at church. Uh, having prayers on the dead, having a, a funeral at church. Again, comes from tradition, the Egbeya in the Coptic Church. Changing our holy day to Sunday. It's always been Saturday. It's always been the Sabbath. No one ever said, we are officially going to change it. It just kind of happened. Praying to the East, fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays, making the sign of the cross. All of these things come to us from the tradition. And most importantly, the Bible itself comes to us from tradition. So every once in a while, I'll be having a discussion with someone Protestant, and he'll say, well, show me where this is in the Bible, right? If it's not in the Bible, I'm not going to do it, right? And you, you find me a verse, and I will do it, but otherwise... I only follow what's in the Bible. And this is called sola scriptura. It comes from the Protestant revolution. Um, and the question I ask, you know, back usually is, well, why do you think this is the Bible? I mean, who told you this book is the Bible? You know, what, why do you only listen to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why do you think those are the gospels? You know, there are other gospels out there. There's the gospel of St. Peter. There's several gospels out there. Why do you think it's just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Who told you that? You know, it all comes printed in that one book, sure. But why do you believe that's the book? Why do you believe that's scripture? And the answer is the church told you, right? The tradition told you, right? In fact, the earliest canon we have of the New Testament gospel is written by St. Athanasius, right? And it's the first list we have, the oldest list we have of the 27 books of the New Testament. So St. Athanasius and, and the church are the ones who said, this is the Bible that you read. That same church also said, face east. That same church said, fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. That same church said, make the sign of the cross. That same church, you should get married in a church. So for you to say, well, you know, I'm not going to make the sign of the cross, but I will follow the Bible. Well, the same, the same tradition that said, make the sign of the cross is the same tradition that said, follow the Bible, that you should read this scripture. It comes from the same place. And St. Saint, Saint Paul um, is, is very clear about this. He's right to the Thessalonians, and he says something. Brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word or mouth or by letter. And he's basically telling them, look, just because I didn't write it down doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Right? You can imagine uh, Emba Tuedros coming here and you know, giving us a sermon and saying, this is what I want you guys to do in your church, right? And then he leaves and uh, we start doing something different. And he goes, well, what are you guys doing? And we say, well, you never told us, you never wrote this down. You never wrote a, a letter to us, you know? I mean, St. Paul would write a letter to the Corinthians and say, you, know, you do X, Y, and Z. But he also went to the Corinthians. He lived with the Corinthians for a long time and he told them a whole slew of stuff. Right. And for the Corinthians to come along and said, well, you know, you said all that stuff, but you never actually wrote it down in your epistle. So we're just going to ignore you. Right. So 
It doesn't make any sense. Right? And so St. Paul here is basically saying, brethren, stand firm. We've taught you traditions, either by word of mouth, which he says first, or by letter. Right? But the word of mouth actually will dominate the letter because there's probably a lot more word of mouth than what's in the letters. So where does the tradition come from? I'll go through this quickly. Liturgies, decisions of the councils, acts of the martyrs, historical books, writings of the fathers, the DDK, which is a very ancient document written by the apostles. And then most importantly, the living experience of the church, right? The church is alive. It's not a dead tradition, right? And we see this during COVID and the pandemic, right? You see the church reacting to the situation. We're going to do this. We're not going to do this, right? It's, 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 this is tradition, living tradition, right? Father uh, John Meindorf writes one of the best books on tradition. It's called The Living Tradition, Because right? tradition is alive, and we can't just imitate the past. That isn't, that's imitation, that's not tradition, right? And, and, you know, in the situation of COVID, for example, you know, we haven't had a pandemic like this in the age of the internet before. So we can't look to St. Athanasius and say, what should we do during a pandemic? Uh, when we have internet access? How do we handle live stream? How do we handle communion? How do we do all these things? Right? The church is alive, the synod is alive, and it's guided by the Holy Spirit, and it comes to decisions in real time. And we are changing the tradition of the church right now. Right? We have, we're doing things we haven't done before, and that's okay. Right? It's not wrong. It's, it's a living reaction to something that's happening in the world, and that's fine. Uh, I'll read you this quote from St. Basil. It's, it's a little long, but um, it's very good. Uh, at least I'll put it up here so that you guys have it. Of the dogmas and sermons preserved in the church, certain ones we have from written instructions and certain ones we have received from the apostolic tradition handed down in secret. So even in St. Basil's time, this is like the 400s AD, he's saying, look, we have two sources of tradition. Some are written and some are uh, handed down in secret, unwritten tradition. And he says, both the one and the other have the same authority for piety. No one, who, and so they're the same. And so here, you know, this is the same discussion we're having now. Obviously, this is a very old discussion, right? Um, back from the fourth century, and the position was very clear of the church. <clears throat> um, no one who is even the least informed of the decrees of the church will contradict this, right? Everyone gets this. It's obvious. For if we dare to overthrow the unwritten customs, the tradition, as if they did not have great importance, we shall thereby imperceptibly do harm to the gospel in its most important points. He's saying, if you throw away the unwritten tradition, then you can't really understand the gospel and you'll harm the gospel and you'll harm the teaching of the gospel, right? The two can't, the two can't be separated. They're mixed together and they're life together. And even more, we shall be left with the empty name of the apostolic preaching without content. And this scares me because this is what I see in some evangelical uh, corners, the empty name of apostolic preaching without content, right? Because, or, or, or even you can say without context, right? Because when I just take the Bible in isolation and I, I'm, I interpret it kind of as professor, uh, sorry, Pastor Chan was saying, um, you know, each guy goes off in his room, studies for 20 hours, and they say, this is what I think. And then we all, they all come back and they all disagree. Right. And this is what happens. It's oh, it's apostolic teaching, but without content, without context, without a life that flows through it, that that unifies it all. Uh, for example, let us especially make note of the first and commonest thing 
those who hope in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ make the sign of the cross. Who taught this in scripture? Right? So he's like, let's start the basics, making the sign of the cross, which then also proves that we, we there people were making the sign of the cross in the very first few centuries. Um, he says, whoever that signs cross is not in the scripture. Which scripture instructed us that we should turn to the east in prayer? So again, they're saying we, we pray to the east, facing the east, as early as the fourth century, and yet it's not in the scripture. Which of the saints left us in written form the words of invocation? So this is the invocation of the Holy Spirit when the bread and the wine are transformed in the Eucharist. Those words are very sacred. He said it's not in the Bible um, of, of the Eucharist and the chalice of blessing. What words taught us, uh, what written word has taught us this anointing with oil itself? Where is the triple immersion? Again, showing us that they triple immersed back in the day and all the rest of it to do with baptism, the renunciation of Satan and the angels to be found. What scripture are these taken from? So he lists a whole bunch of things that we, we, we do to this day. And he says, this isn't in the scriptures. Is it not from this unpublished and unspoken teaching, which our fathers have preserved in a silence, inaccessible to curiosity and scrutiny, because they were thoroughly instructed to preserve in silence and sanctity of the mysteries, right? So the reason we have these is people preserve them and they held them in very great esteem. Right. When St. Mark came to Egypt and he ordained Ananias as the very first, the second patriarch of the Coptic church, he taught him a lot of things in silence, in mystery, unwritten traditions. And those things are very sacred. And that person then preserved them and kept them going and going and so on and so forth. We're almost done. Uh, the Ecumenical Council, this is the year 325. He's, they say, we should not look at the bread and cup of the holy table as if they were mere bread and wine, but we must lift up the mind beyond the senses and perceive by faith that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world rests here and that they are partaking of the very body of the Lord and his very blood. So again, it's kind of indisputable at this point, right? There's so much evidence, as, as Professor, as, as Pastor Chan said, uh, of, of the church believing that this has always been the body and blood. And it wasn't until very recently that people start saying, well, maybe this is just a symbol, maybe this is just a memorial, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, these words, uh, you know, the, the quotes I've given you, fourth, fifth century, and the, the Protestants, uh, you know, Martin Luther and Swingley and Calvin and all these guys that came along, came along 1,200 years later and said, no, no, that's not what Christ meant. That's not what the church believes. It believes this other thing, right? And that's, uh, you know, a, a very dangerous thing. So I'll end today um, with the quote I started with. It is needful to understand the miracle of the mysteries, what it is, why it was given, and what is the profit, right? This is a very, very important uh, part. And with God's grace and your prayers, hopefully over the next uh, couple of months, we will talk a lot more about the Eucharist and understand in depth why we do what we do and where these things come from and glory be to God forever. Amen. Everyone stay safe and uh, hopefully we'll get to see you guys uh, in person at some point soon. Uh, love you all. Thanks.